I'm Michael Shoulder, and on this episode of Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. I was in a bar. Guy came up to me and he said, just right out of the blue, he said, I'm looking for a nice guy. Just like that. And I said, well, you know what? I'm a nice guy. A nice guy. My guest today, Jack Gantos, was sitting in a bar in St. Croix, where he'd come to work for his father's construction company. The Caribbean island's economy was crumbling, and Jack felt desperate to leave. He said, I have a deal to offer you. I said, well, you know, ask away. He said, uh, a boat is soon going to pull into the harbor with red sails. And on that boat, there's going to be 2,000 pounds of hashish. And we're going to need another sailor to help us sail that boat to New York City. He said, we'll give you $10,000 in cash once we sell the dope in New York City if you help us sail that boat. At that moment, Jack Antos made a big mistake. Well, it's like, oh my God, this is my exit. I mean, how easy can this be? I don't even know how to sail a boat, but I'll figure it out. And $10,000, I knew right away that this was it. It was wrong, but it was the exit. It was the only exit I had. That wrong exit would lead to a federal prison sentence, a terrifying time that he will soon describe, one that motivated him to become the success that he is today. Jack Antos has written 50 books for people of all ages, including the Newbery Award-winning young adult novel, Dead End in Norvelt. There will be more to come. Jack Antos, uh, you're here in Nantucket for the Nantucket Book Festival. Uh, welcome to the Wavemaker Studio for Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. Well, thank you. I like to consider myself part of the insanely curious collection of people and uh, collection of people that you've interviewed. So thank you very much for having me. You made a very big mistake that we're going to talk about. Yes. And as I reflected on your life trajectory, I thought, oh, you called your memoir a hole in my life. We could have, I might call this podcast episode, Jack Gantos, Reading Saved His Life. And then I thought, well, wait a second. Is it reading that saved your life or is it writing that saved your life? I would say that it's reading that saved the life. Reading, for me, early on, always opened up an interior world within me where I think a lot of people, maybe even in my own family and maybe people that I would know, or perhaps it's just my lack of uh, perception into character, but a lot of people, it seemed to me, just were living a very physical life, an outside life. But when I would read a book... I would have this very deep interior life, uh, a life that was not inchoate, a life that was articulate, a life that was described not only by the imagery that you could see in your imagination, but the matchup of the words to sentences that you could provide uh, an explanation of what you were imagining to yourself. And then if you decided to, you could take that same language, open a journal, and write it down. But without the reading, there would have been 
I think, very little writing. That connection is so crucial, for, especially for young students and students in junior high and high school to understand why is it that without the reading, there wouldn't have been the writing. The reading itself is really the salt, it's the energy, it's, it's the machinery of how you define the world in an exterior way and in an interior way so that you don't just walk around all day long looking at the world going tree, floor, plant, house, and you have a vocabulary of about 500 words that pretty much manages your life. But no, the, the reading provides you know, sort of the grammar and the syntax and, the, and pairs physical objects to emotional sensations. And that creates that dimension where you see the physical world and then you experience the emotional world. And then you realize when you read a book, a good book, I always think, that if you just raked the book apart, 50% of it would be the exterior world, the world of the plot, the world of what the characters did, and so on and so forth and so on. But the other 50% would be spelunking down into the characters' imaginations and motivations and, and emotions. And without that, you wouldn't really have a book. So there's a keeper of a phrase, a spelunking down into the... Into, how did you put it? Spelunking into the, the emotional resonance of a book. And spelunking into the emotional resonance of a character. Yes. At what point did you start to be able to see that that's what was going on during this reading process? Huh. That's a good question. You know, because when you start reading the youngest books um, and you begin to fall in love with the characters, and even at an early age, even the, the Pooh books at an early age, you know, you see the definitions of the types of characters, like there's Tigger, who is just so energetic and, and sort of ADHD almost, and then there's Pooh, who is just so calm and Buddha-like, and, and then there's Eeyore, who is like always down in the dumps. And you can begin to, to sort of tether out all the different aspects of, a, of one character's personality. And then later on you realize, oh my gosh, there could actually be one character, one human being or one character that has all those segments, all those attributes. And those are the moods, those are the pure moods that all of us contain. You're listening to Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. I'm Michael Schulder. My guest, who sat down with me during the annual Nantucket Book Festival, is Jack Gantos, who has written dozens of great books for teenagers. His own teen years took a troubling turn, and ultimately, that mistake we alluded to earlier, a mistake that led to prison. Before we continue, I'm having Jack read a short passage from his memoir, which is called A Hole in My Life, about his horrifying time in prison. If you're particularly sensitive or are listening to this with children, you may want to shuttle forward about two and a half minutes. The prisoner in the photograph is me. The ID number is mine. The photo was taken in 1972 at the Medium Security Federal Correctional Institution in Ashland, Kentucky. I was 21 years old and had been locked up for a year already, the bleakest year of my life, and I had more time ahead of me. At the time this picture was taken, I weighed 125 pounds. When I look at my face in the photo, I see nothing but the pocked mask I was hiding behind. I might have been slight, 
but I was smart and cagey. I managed to avoid a lot of trouble because I knew how to blend in and generally sift through the days unnoticed by men who spent the majority of their time looking to inflict pain on others. Many of the men found cruel and menacing ways to make each day a walk through a tunnel of fear for others. Fear of being a target of irrational violence haunted me day and night. The constant tempo of that violence pulsed throughout my body and made me feel small and weak and cowardly. But no matter how big you were, there was no preventing the brutality. I had seen the results of violence so often, with guys hauling off and smashing someone's face with their fists, or with a metal tool, a baseball bat, a rock, and all for no other reason than some imagined offense or to establish a reputation for savagery. When I lived and worked in the prison hospital, especially after I had become the x-ray technician, I was part of an emergency medical response team. I was called on day and night to x-ray all types of ugly wounds, to see if the bones behind the bruised or bleeding flesh had been cracked, chipped, or broken. As we examined them, the patients would be telling the guards, I didn't even know the guy, or my greatest fear, I never heard him, never saw him. It was this lottery of violence that haunted me. I wasn't raised around this level of violence. I wasn't prepared for it, and I've never forgotten it. Even now, when walking some of Boston's meaner streets, I find myself moving like a knife, carving my way around people, cutting myself out of their picture, and leaving nothing of myself behind but a hole. Describe to me how a, g- a guy who was so into reading started going down that path. Well, yes. I know we all love to believe that if we became readers or if our children became readers, that that would be the inoculation against anything perilous or stop them from being self-hateful or sociopathic in some sort of way. And I was a reader. I was a good reader. I liked books, and books really uh, defined me to myself. But there was also another self in there, too. And I think that other self was a little unsatisfied and perhaps a little confused. I did go to 10 schools in 12 grades, um, not always the best schools. Here's where things really started to get bad. So, so 11th grade, we moved to Puerto Rico from Florida. I was going to a high school in Fort Lauderdale which was basically a large sports facility with a small academic institution, like a tick attached to the side of it. And uh, we moved to Puerto Rico. I moved to Puerto Rico, and I didn't go back to school. So halfway through 11th grade, I quit. was becoming an electrician's apprentice, and I was no good at electricity. So I came back to Florida by myself. My parents uh, arranged for me to live with a family, a nice family with young kids. And I had all the freedom in the world. I had a car, I had a job, and I started drinking. And once I started drinking, I uh, really seemed to be an irritant to that family, and they asked me to leave. If I was in their shoes, I would want me out of the house too. So I sort of like pulled myself together, and I rented a room in a, a welfare motel on Broward Boulevard 
Northern, North Broward Boulevard in Fort Lauderdale from, uh, it was called the King's Court, and it was uh, Davy Crockett's great-great-granddaughter who ran it, and uh, she was a hoot and a half, and I don't know what it was. Maybe I had a hangover, but I, when she told me her name, I said, prove it. Prove to me that you're Davy Crockett's great-great-granddaughter. And she was wearing one of those V-neck white T-shirts, like a man's V-neck white T-shirt. And the V part, she had worn it for so long, had that yellow stain on it, that there's no amount of bleach that could ever bleach that out. And she just reached down in there into some undergarment, and she pulled out this leathery, slick, sort of oily wallet that belonged to Davy Crockett. And she said, I keep this close to my heart. It was his. And I said, okay, that's good enough for me. And uh, she rented me room number three, and it was the best welfare motel I ever could have lived in. We had Seminole Indians. We had Hispanic people. We have African-American people. We had drifters. And there was me the kid in high school who every day would wear a tie and a little jacket and, and and go off to Plantation High School. Well, that's incredible. So here you are in a welfare motel with your tie and jacket. And as, and as a parent, and I've, I've done a number of interviews with people uh, on parenting and child development talking about a a, a phenomenon that is fairly recent called over-parenting or helicopter mm. parenting. And this is the as far away from overparenting as you can get your parents sent you away from their home now i don't think any parent today listening would say this is a great idea let's send our kids and see if they can survive on this limited amount of money check into a welfare motel nevertheless it sounds like you were one resourceful guy you become resourceful when you have uh, a few choices and you want to go forward so you have to just take advantage of the situation. I got a job at Publix Market. I was a bag boy and a stock boy. I paid my own rent, bought a car, paid my own insurance, bought my own clothes, and went to school. I did okay in high school, and I did okay in the motel. And that year was not really a bad year for me. It started out bad when I was living with that family. I started drinking too much then. But then that tapered off. Once I had control of my life, then I started reading. I started keeping notebooks. I started writing. Uh, not a lot, but I was reading an awful lot. What helped make that year a great one for Jack Antos, as you're about to hear, was a teacher who saw something in Jack that others did not. You're listening to Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. I'm Michael Schulder. My guest, author Jack Gantos, who spoke with me at the annual Nantucket Book Festival. I had a psychology teacher at school, uh, Miss Green, and I don't know why. She just plucked me out of the class one day, and she said, uh, "She said, can I talk to you?" And I and I thought, "Oh my God, I'm in trouble again," you know. And, and she said. Look, I, I just, I just want to ask you a, a couple of basic questions, you know, about, about things that you like or things that you don't like. And I thought, oh, this is just sort of like a personality test, you know. 
And she started asking me about books. And I started saying, oh, yeah, well, I like to read. And then we just started. She was a good reader. So we would start talking about reading. And, and then I said, well, and you know, it'd be great to write. And she was really sort of the first person I'd owned up to, that there would possibly be some place in my life for reading and writing. Because I'd never heard of anyone or met anyone where writing was a career. Writing was always something other people did, and you passively read their book. How powerful it is for a teacher. You know, you often think of the inspiring teacher who says something that has an impact on you. In this case, it was a teacher who asked you a question and listened and almost, it's, am I reading too much into this? No, who, you are. who helped you hear a part of your voice that may have been, you didn't even imagine existed. No, it, it was like when I said the words, it was like, it was like an echo. She was just like, it just bounced off of her. It was a reverberation. And I could hear my, I could finally hear myself. Instead of thinking it, I could hear it. So at this point in his life, Jack Antos, a reader, a guy who now could imagine one day becoming a writer, had a logical next step ahead of him, college. First, he took what would be a dangerous detour. I just graduated high school. You know, when I was living in the, the welfare motel and at high school, I'd had just, just enough structure to keep me together. And then uh, we didn't have a lot of money. So uh, University of Florida was like $300 a semester. It was nothing. So I drove up. I was accepted there. I drove up. I wanted to write. I, by then, I knew I wanted to write. So I drove up to University of Florida for my interview. And it looked just like grade 13. It looked just like my high school. It was a gigantic sports facility with a small academic institution. And I just had that moment where I knew that this was a mistake to go to this school. And you could not, you were not allowed to take any creative writing courses until your junior year. And I really wanted to dive in with both feet at this point. And I don't know, I just said, no, I'm not coming. I'll write books in that motel room. I went back, well, I didn't write any books. Once I had no structure, then I started to kind of creep back into drinking, then I started smoking dope, and then I could see myself falling apart. I had some friends that, that smoked dope, and so I smoked some dope, and you know, it was, seemed okay, it wasn't fabulous, and then later on I got, I think, better dope, and then it seemed a little more powerful. And in a way, there was a bit of a seduction to it because under the influence, you kind of felt like, wow, you're just, you know, it's kind of like creative. But yeah, you're creative, but you're not creative with structure. You're not creative with direction. You're not creative with energy. You're just sort of free floating. And um, after a while, I realized... I wasn't reading as much, and I wasn't writing as much, and that smoking dope really just like meant to me that I was just going to smoke a joint, and I was camped out on my bed, not doing an awful lot, and my world was crumbling around me, and I thought, well, this is not helping me, so I swallowed my pride. I moved down to St. Croix, where my parents had now started working. And I started working construction with my dad's company, and I thought, I'll write at night. That's what I'll do. I'll work construction, I'll write at night. I was always trying to come up with some sort of plan. 
But you work construction all day in the sun. Um, you don't do writing at night, you know. You drink cold beer at night. About six months of that went by, and, and I had one of those, those moments when I was downtown, and a group of guys passed me, and they must have been maybe three or four years older than me, and they were high, and they were just completely, you know, trashed. And I just looked at them, and I went, oh, my God, that's me. That is me. That is the direction I am going. If I don't get out of here, I'm one of those guys. In fact, suddenly I looked all around the island, and it was like, oh, my God, everybody on this island is pretty much trashed. It is not America's paradise. It's America's pariah. So I said, okay, i got to get off. And then I met this guy. Just like that, I met this nice guy. I was in a bar. Guy came up to me and he said, just right out of the blue, he said, I'm looking for a nice guy. Just like that. And I said, well, you know what? I'm a nice guy. It was like the funniest conversation. I'm looking for a nice guy. I'm a nice guy. He said, well, I have a deal to offer you. A nice guy. I said, well, you know, ask away. He said, uh, a boat is soon going to pull into the harbor with red sails. And on that boat, there's going to be 2,000 pounds of hashish. And we're going to need another sailor to help us sail that boat to New York City. He said, we'll give you $10,000 in cash once we sell the dope in New York City if you help us sail that boat. And I looked at him, and when he said that, it was like a revelation. It was like God's word had come down and was speaking only to me. It was like, oh my God, this is my exit. I mean, how easy can this be? I don't even know how to sail a boat, but I'll figure it out. And $10,000, I don't know if you remember 1970, $10,000 was like four years at Harvard. $10,000 was more than my father was making. I mean, it was money and it was cash. So I just looked at the guy and I said, sure, absolutely, count me in. I mean, I did not say, pardon me, I need to go home and sleep on this. Maybe I should talk to my dad or, you know, get some advice. But no, I knew, I knew right away that this was it. It was wrong, but it was, it was the exit. It was the only exit I had. And it sounded like fun. I cannot, I cannot, in all honesty, say to you, well, you know, I was a real choir boy, and this was the only thing I could do. But no, it sounded like fun, adventure, money, exit, all wrapped in one. Boom. About a week later, that boat pulled into the harbor. I looked out. I saw the red sails. I went and saw my contact, Rick. I said, hey, the boat's in. He said, terrific. We went out to the boat. I met the guys on the boat. There were two guys. They had sailed the boat from Morocco to St. Croix. They had bought the 2,000 pounds of hashish with counterfeit American money. Now, I did not know this at the time. So naturally, the Treasury Department and Secret Service is all over that. So they pull in. The one guy, Harvey, flies to New York City to set up the deals. The other guy, Hamilton, is on the boat. That's why he needs one more guy, me, to help him sail the boat. And so we prepared, and we took off. So tell me, you were, you, 
you get with this guy who sounded like a bit of a lunatic, the guy who was sailing this boat. Yes, he was. So Hamilton, so, so we take off. He doesn't like wearing clothes. So he's naked and he has a handgun. So it was kind of a peculiar thing to look at Hamilton because his nudity didn't bother me all that much, but I wasn't that comfortable with it. And he would have the gun, and then he'd put the gun on his lap, and then you'd be like, oh, this is so uncomfortable. You know, like, why is this guy doing this? Why? You know, but he, he always loved having that full-body tan, which you can get on the middle of the Atlantic easily. And I was, uh, a, you know, a little uptight about that. And then the other thing that he would do is uh, he would practice with the gun. So uh, what he would make me do is stand up at the bow sprint with a stick and a can on it, and he would stand back. The boat was about 60 feet long, and he would stand back by the wheel, and he would fire that, that pistol, and you could actually hear the bullets passing, whistling by your ear. At any rate, he missed me, uh, missed the can, missed me, and the other thing I thought of, if he hits you, you fall into the Atlantic Ocean, and nobody ever sees you again, and, and that's the end of it. So this started early on, and then he became a little bit more abusive. He was nervous, and uh, we ran out of fuel. We had uh, very little wind. Uh, we finally started hitting North Carolina. We, in fact, our compass was broken. We had a radio directional finder. Um, you know, this was not a well-planned operation. And at one point, and this was rather suspicious, these Air Force uh, prop planes would come swooping out of the sky and right over the mast of the boat, boom. And then they'd go around and boom again. And I'd stand on deck and wave to them like, like the biggest idiot you've ever seen, waving, waving. Well, of course, they were taking photographs because they were following this boat because of that counterfeit money. But I didn't know it at the time. I just thought, oh, they're out there. They see a boat. They're just like giving you the high five. So finally, we made it to Cape May, New Jersey. Took us a month of sailing, bobbing around and sailing. We'd make it to Cape May, New Jersey. We pull in to a Coast Guard base, to Cape May Coast Guard base. Jesus, there's Hamilton. He's naked with the gun. And here comes a little Coast Guard boat, a little tiny one with like six recruits in it with a bullhorn. Hello, hello, you're in restricted waters. And I keep saying to Hamilton, put some pants on for God's sake. Drop, put the gun down. <laughs> I'm like, I am as nervous as a cat at this point. So finally he put some pants on and they come up and they go, is there anything we can do to help you? We're like, no, no, we're, we're fine. He goes, well, you've got to turn around and leave. And I thought, oh, gosh, they're so nice, you know. Well, of course, they knew, too, that we had it. That's why they didn't board the boat in, in their own waters, because they wanted to keep us, keep us going to New York, because the whole plan, as it turns out, was they were going to get the 2,000 pounds to New York City, and then they were going to let us distribute it, and then, which they did, and then pounce. The pounce took place at the Chelsea Hotel, fittingly. Why do you say fittingly? Well, the Chelsea was just such a great place. 
place. First off, it's so bookish that Chelsea, you know, Arthur C. Clarke had lived there and Burroughs had lived there and Tom Wolfe and, you know, it was, had a whole gigantic literary history. And then the whole Warhol crowd was, you know, sort of hanging out there. And then, you know, well, it was just, for me, it was like, it was like, wow, I finally, like, I've, like, now I'm, I'm seeing what is going on. This is the literary nexus of the world right here at the Chelsea Hotel. Who knew I was going to sail a boat, get $10,000 in cash, and be right at the center, the core of it. And then I began thinking, okay, maybe I can go to school in New York. Maybe I'll find a place right here. This will be great. And I had my 10000 in cash. They gave it to me, $10 bills. I had it all. And I was just about ready to leave. Hamilton came to me and he said, look, this went so well, let's do it again. Let's go to Morocco, get another boatload and do it again. And I think he offered me like $100,000. And I said, no, I won't, I won't. This was, you know, this was it. About that time, he walked down the stairs into the lobby of the Chelsea Hotel. And I was just kind of blocking the door. And uh, I heard, stop, stop, customs. And then I heard a fist fight. And then I heard Hamilton just screaming. And I knew that something bad had happened. And the strangest little thing happened. Somehow the customs department and the Secret Service and the FBI were not talking to each other as all of this was going on. And so while Hamilton was pinned down on the floor of the lobby of the Chelsea Hotel by the customs agents, two FBI agents came in, and Hamilton had the wherewithal to point to the FBI and go, those two guys own the boat. And the customs agents jumped up and attacked the FBI agents. Hamilton ran out the back door of the Chelsea Hotel, ran down an alley. Now Hamilton's great pride to his whole being was his beard. He had a beard like a giant sea sponge. Every day he would groom his beard, his big beard. So he's running down the street. It's the most distinctive thing about him is his beard. So he runs into a barber shop and he says to the barber, cut my beard off. And the barber looks at him and goes, Sir, that is the most beautiful beard I've ever seen. I cannot cut that beard off. He's like, cut the damn beard. And they're like, no. He runs out to find another barber, and they snatched him on the street. That's when he got, oh, it got snatched. I heard that. I was so scared. I went in the room. I got my duffel bag. I got five pounds of hashish, which I had stashed away. I had my $10,000 in cash. And... I went out the front. I walked downstairs and I went right out the front. I went right to Penn Station. I got on a train. I bought some hair dye in Penn Station. I dyed my hair and I went all the way back to Davy Crockett. I went to her door. I took that train. It was like a 24 hour train right to Fort Lauderdale from New York. I said, Davy, I need a room. She looked at me and said, I don't know what the problem is, but I'll give you a room. So I got a room. I stayed there a couple days. I thought I'd better call home. So I called my dad. First thing he said is, where the hell are you? 
I said, somewhere. He said, well, I'll tell you what somewhere means. I've got the FBI parked in the driveway. They've tapped our phone. They're reading our mail, and they're looking for you. He said, I've got an attorney for you in New York. Wherever you are, get there. So I turned right around and went back to New York, got my attorney, pled guilty. We went to see the uh, prosecuting attorney. And remember those airplanes that went over the boat? The prosecuting attorney, his name is Tierney, he opens a folder and there are these blown up photographs of this grinning little kid, me, on the deck of the boat waving, and they had photographic evidence of the entire thing. They had photographic evidence of me pushing um, shopping carts filled with duffel bags full of hashish up the sidewalks in New York City to make deliveries to apartments. And they had arrested everybody that I had delivered to. They had everyone. So I pled guilty. I was young. My attorney said, oh, you would just get probation. I went to court, and the judge said, his name was Croak. I had tyranny and Croak. Croak said, he said, young man, what do you have to say for yourself? And honestly, I didn't know what to say for myself. I said, well, I'm a good kid. And he stood up, and he looked at me, and he said, good kids don't smuggle dope. Boom, he hit the gavel. He said, 5010B. And I looked at my attorney. I said, what's a 5010B? He said, I don't know. I'll have to look it up. I said, well, where do I go? And he said, you go with him. And the biggest cop I'd ever seen came, handcuffed me, took me into a holding cell with all the other people that had been given time. And I walked into a room full of everybody that I'd avoided all my life. I weighed probably 125 pounds. I was a skinny white boy with long shoulder length hippie hair, sun bleached. And every head in that room turned around and looked at me. And I thought, this is when you really have to hunker down and figure out what to do with your life because you're not going to survive this otherwise. And from there, they took me to West Street Prison, which was uh, uh, Dutch Schultz's old liquor warehouse that was confiscated during uh, Prohibition. It was a building around West Street and 13th Street. No windows. All the windows had been blocked up. Walked in, it was all cages. Nothing but cages. And I was in a 36-man cage. And I got the luckiest break of my life. Just a brief warning here. Because of the violent nature of the anecdote he's about to share, some of you may want to shuttle forward about 50 seconds. I went in with a guy that was one of the dealers. There were two bunks available. I took the bunk in the corner on the top under a fluorescent light. He got the bunk in the middle in the dark on the bottom. That night, I had to fight people off coming up over the top of my bunk. And fortunately, I had a pair of old fry boots with big heels on them. And you got to keep your boots. And I just kept kicking guys away. And my friend, 
did not make it through. He got raped that night, that very first night. And that could have been me right there. That just could have been, I could not have gotten over that. That could have been with me forever. And then about two months later, then uh, they sent me to Kentucky, to Ashland, Kentucky, to a medium security prison. You had to have a job. And it just so happened that the x-ray tech in the little prison hospital had tried to escape that day and uh, tried to climb over the fences, which is impossible. And plus, they pull you down with a gaff hook. And they said, oh, we can't take your chest x-ray. They had TB in that area. We can't take your chest x-ray because we don't have an x-ray tech. I said, I know how to run an x-ray machine. He said, really? I said, yeah. Do you have a handbook? They said, yeah. That night, I read the handbook. Next day, I was the x-ray tech. Thank God for reading. And then, because I worked in the hospital, I got my own cell. I had my own cell. And my God, I thought, I had, that's really dying and going to heaven. You could be in your own cell with the door locked, and nobody could touch you. I did about a year and a half there. I wrote. I read. They had a library. And after about a year and a half, I was supposed to do at least two years and then go up and see the parole board because that turned out to be a six-year sentence. But then I got a little tired of being in prison. You get a little bored. I went down there at an old Barron's Guide to Colleges. And so I thought, well, let me look up a college. So I looked up one. It was in Boston. I had some old friends in Boston. It was Graham Junior College. It was going out of business. You could just tell. I wrote him a letter, asked for an application. You're not fooling anybody. It has Department of U.S. You know, corrections on the envelope. And um, I filled out an application and I uh, was accepted. I took that acceptance to my caseworker. And again, another lucky break. My caseworker before, when I first arrived at that prison, was just retiring. He had, everybody had bullshit that guy forever. He didn't believe anything that came out of your mouth. My new caseworker, right out of college, brand new kid. And I said, I've been accepted to college. That guy moved mountains for me. He got a special review of the parole board, and they let me out to go to college. And I went directly from a jail cell to a dorm room and started college. I got out on December 18th, and I started college that January at uh, Emerson College in Boston. And they had a creative writing program, a BFA in creative writing program. Now, I had that $10,000. For some reason, the feds never took it. So I gave my dad some money. Lawyer had some money. I had $1,700. And that's what Emerson cost, 17 for that semester. I handed over seventeen. Hundred dollars in ten dollar bills at the bursar's office. I was counting them out. They sure must have known I was a drug dealer because it looked odd. I started there and finally, finally, I went into that first creative writing class. And by the time I got out of that first semester, I realized these, my students, the professors, the teachers, the writers, were my people. These were the people I was looking for all my life, the people that read books, that built an interior life, an interior universe that I, too, had been attempting to build. And now here they were.
and I could have them for my friends and we could talk just as easily as we're talking about the interior world, the exterior world, the world of books, the world of reading, poetry, prose, plays, comedy. And it just seemed to me that everything opened up. I was on parole for four years. I was a security guard. And uh, I did uh, pots and pans at 5 a.m. working in a cafeteria. Um, I parked cars. I did a lot of things for jobs. And then uh, my second year in college, uh, then I published my first book at Houghton Mifflin, my first picture book, which was the first Rotten Ralph book, illustrated by Nicole Rubel. And then by the time I got out of undergrad, I had three books published. And then they hired me to start teaching. And then I became full-time. And then I was a tenured professor in creative writing at Emerson. And then I knew that if... I loved teaching. I put everything into the teaching, and the writing was always lagging behind. And then finally, I got to the point in my life where I said, okay, you're either going to have to teach or write. Took a leave of absence, another leave of absence, and by then, I'd written about four or five novels in those two years, and uh, I was not, I didn't go back. And uh, since then, now I published, uh, it's all together, it's about 50 books, from picture books to books of uh, short stories for upper elementary, middle school novels, and, uh, and high school novels, and uh, memoirs. And just, boy, I'm, I'm sort of out of breath just listening to the, uh, to the condensed version of that history. is <laughs> so unbelievable, and it almost feels like you tell me. It almost feels like when you got out of prison on parole and got to Emerson College, in terms of your writing, it was like you were shot out of a cannon. I was. I was. I recognized that it was the, probably the best thing that had happened to me. That what? That, that the being in prison was? or that the <laughs> Both of those things simultaneously. I, I go to high schools all the time. I talk to kids all the time. I go into prisons all the time and talk to young men. And they always ask, the question always comes up, would you take prison away? Would you just like skip over that? And I always have to say, no, I, I could not. Because if I removed that piece of the puzzle of my life, then the motivation for going to school and writing books and really making something of myself, that motivation might have dwindled, might never, it may, may never have uh, blossomed in me. And it may not have been the springboard that I needed. I want to ask you about a, a very thick journal that I'm going to take a picture of because it's, it looks like you use it a lot. And there are all kinds of, what would you say, there are a couple hundred pages in there and there are thick pages and there's, there are things stuffed in there. What is that journal? I'll just tell you just a little story about this. This is something I did in, in fifth grade with this journal is... Uh, I was a library helper. That's how I got through school. I would uh, go to a new school, and I'd walk to the library. I'd say, I'm the new kid. I like books. The librarian would go, you come with me. I will protect you from all the wicked children in this school. I mean, it was, it was the best gig going, and it worked every time. All you have to do is tell a librarian you read, and they love you. So I used to shelve books, and one day 
I'm in the G section. And I'm like, the G section, where? If I wrote a book, where would it go? So I went down and it was Galdone and George. And I was like, oh, that's me. So I stuck my hand right there and I wiggled it to make room, you know, for my whole hand in there. And then, I don't know what possessed me to say this, but I, I said, I promise I will write a book someday and it will go right here. When I had this journal on the spine, which is gone, it used to say, Jack's Black Book. I'd put that book on the shelf. I put that book on the shelf and I had a librarian, Mrs. Hammer, and she put a call number on it and we put a library pocket in it and I actually checked my journal out. And I have had pages in the back asking for comments and somebody checked it out. And then I realized, oh my God, that's my journal. That's all that stuff, all the junk and the stories and the ideas. That was like I was giving myself away to somebody who could have been absolutely horrendously cruel and, and mocking. And then you know, it didn't come back and it didn't come back. And every day I would look in that book return and I was absolutely, I was, I was just so nervous because I knew that this person was probably taking it around and showing it to everybody and, and just as though somebody had cut me open and turned me inside out and said, look at what a pathetic human being this is on the inside. And I realized, my God, why would I have just given that away to people? And then it came back. It came back. And I grabbed it. And I did not put it back on the shelf. And I was lucky to get it back. But I don't know what possessed me then. But now I can say with all certainty that I know what it was. That I wanted people to see what was on the inside of me. Because on the outside, I was just like some skinny little kid. But on the inside, I was so much bigger, so much more thoughtful, so much more artistic. I was a greater version of myself in the book than I was out of the book. So that's what I think I wanted people to see. Now that I have books, I get to show them that freely. I don't have to, I don't have to put my journals in jeopardy for that. Now I can write intentionally. But that was a little moment in my life that, uh, that was both great and really kind of scary. There's the name of another teacher. The librarian was who? Mrs. Hammer. I mean, that again, I mean, it's, it's actually, it's, it's a reminder to everyone out there that the smallest gesture can make such a huge impact. Can you imagine if she had said, no, 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 you don't put that there. I mean, that, that gesture of validating what came from you she didn't give you the pep talk. You didn't need the pep talk. No. You had that image inside you, and she validated it. It was almost like an act. Of, it was an. It was like an improvisation exercise, right? It's oh a, yeah. Here's your. You've you've got your place here for the book, and she just she didn't say no. She said yes, and she took it. She took that gesture, and she said yes. We'll make the card. Huh. We'll put it there. 
And so here you have it. How many years later? Oh, how old are you in fifth grade? So about uh, 10, 11. So it would be uh, about uh, 50, 55 years ago. This is Michael Schulder. You're listening to Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. My guest, the award-winning author of Dead End in Norvelt and many other young adult novels, as well as his own riveting memoir, Hole in My Life, Jack Gantos. Two last questions. Did, did your, have your parents lived to, or did they live to see your, your profession as a writer? My father died when he was 59. I had published a few picture books at that time. Um, he never really talked much about it. But when I cleaned out his car, he had a Ford LTD. And I dropped that glove compartment down and all my books were in his glove compartment. I thought I'd cry a river. And my mother, this is, you know, my mother had to live this, so, you know, I don't bring that book up around her. There's just no reason to. You know, we talk about the good times. We talk about the better books. We talk about the fun books. And uh, she's good with that. But, you know, this is one of those books that, as my mother said, I would just rather not talk about it. And I respect that. As for Jack's wife and college-age daughter, I wanted to know if they had read Hole in My Life. Yes. But every now and again, I get my back up and I go, you two, you don't even read my own books. And they both look at me and go, we don't have to read your books because you're always talking about yourself all day long. And that just sort of puts me in my place, (laughs) so I don't pursue it. (laughs) Well, listen, Jack Gantos, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be among the insanely curious. I think these are my people. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Jack. You've been listening to Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. If you find this podcast enriching, I hope you'll subscribe for free on iTunes. Or you can go to my website, wavemaker.me. Once you subscribe for free, the weekly episodes are delivered automatically to your phone or computer. And then every traffic jam, every train ride, every flight becomes an opportunity to get smarter. Thanks to my editor, Brian Morris. I'm Michael Schulder. Thank you for listening to Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious.